So I've titled this sermon, The Lord is Victorious Even in His People's Defeat. The Lord is Victorious Even in His People's Defeat. And we're looking at Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 45, all the way to the end of Ezekiel 21. Last night, last Sunday night, if you were here, uh, Paul had set to preach until verse 49, but when I went up to read, he called an audible and told me just to read to verse 44. That was the right decision because Ezekiel 20 verse 45 really fits with Ezekiel chapter 21. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 45 is the first verse of Ezekiel chapter 21. Uh, It's also uh, a good thing because John Calvin himself stopped at Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 44. And then he fell ill, went to his bed, and died. This work was published the following year in 1565. Calvin died in 1564. January 18, 5065, Theodore Beza, in a dedicatory preface to Gaspard de Coligny, a prominent French Protestant, spoke of, um, well, I'm sure that you will enjoy this last swan-like song of his, even as as you grieve. And then he adds, um, his premature death prevented him from completing Ezekiel, which is the more to be lamented by the church because this prophet, especially towards the last, is the most obscure of all, and I know not who will ever arise to complete this picture commenced by Calvin. To put it another way, Calvin would rather die and go home and be with the Lord than preach these next couple of chapters of Ezekiel. So what we, what we see here, though, in Ezekiel twenty forty five to the end of chapter 21 is how the Lord is victorious even in the defeat of his people. So I've got three headings for us. Sovereign judgment from the end of 20 to 21-23. Symbols of authority in verses 24 to 27. And then right at the end, a stark contrast. Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. So sovereign judgment, symbols of authority, and a stark contrast. So first, sovereign judgment. We need to recognize that even when horrible things happen, God is still in control. His discipline for a season can seem harsh, but it is always purposeful. It is never haphazard. As we said a moment ago, God did not leave things to chance or fortune when he created the world. There are two sovereigns In this passage, there's Nebuchadnezzar, the sovereign king of Babylon, but then there is the true sovereign, the Lord God Almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords. And what does the sovereign Lord bring? He brings judgment. We see the fire of his judgment in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 45 to 48. And lest there be any confusion about who is sending the fire of judgment, verse 48 says, 
All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Who is the sovereign bringing the judgment? The Lord, God Almighty, is the sovereign. Now, when uh, in verse 49, when the people say, uh, when, when uh, Ezekiel complains to the Lord, they're saying that I'm, I'm making these parables. I think that, that that's basically an accusation of gibberish. Like, you're, you're, you're not speaking clearly. And so the Lord gives him a new vision in chapter 21, I think, to more fully explain exactly what is going to happen. And what's going to happen in verses 1 to 23 is that there will be a sword. The Lord draws his sword, verse 3. He has his drawn sword, verse 4. In case you missed it, verse 5, I have drawn my sword. It is the Lord's sword. Why is he doing this? Verse 10, you have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. So God tried to bring a soft discipline to his people year after year after year, and they would not listen. And so now there is a sword. And the sword, back to verse 4, will afflict both the righteous and the wicked. Now, the Lord is not contradicting himself in, in contrast to what he says earlier in Ezekiel, that the soul that sins shall die, right? In, there, it's appointed once for a man to die and after that to face judgment, as we, as we learn in Hebrews. And so you have to stand before the Lord. But it is sobering to think that in calamities that face nations, there are uh, people who are faithless to the Lord. They despise the Lord. But the, the righteous and the wicked are swept up. And the Lord recognizes this. So this is not ultimate judgment, but it is real suffering. Now, Ezekiel is told to strike. And then, this is in verse 12 of chapter 21. Strike their four upon your your thigh. He's told to clap and then to swipe uh, three times in verse 13. And I think he's uh, being told to give the people an elaborate visual picture of all that's going to be happening. You know, so he's swiping the air and whatnot. And then he's also told in verse six to groan. And then in verse 12 to, um, to wail. Cry out and wail, son of man, because there's an elaborate picture of slaughter, right? The swiping and the clapping. But why does he groan? Why is he told to wail? Because the slaughter is set against the Lord's own people. God's own people are going to face this hardship. Verse 12, sorry, verse 11 says the sword's given to be polished that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished and given into the hand of the slayer. So the Lord prepares the sword as the sovereign, but then it's given into the hand of the slayer. Well, who is the slayer? Verse 19, the slayer is another sovereign, the king of Babylon. Now, the king of Babylon has two ways to go. 
It's kind of choose your own adventure. And in verse 20, we learn that he could, he comes to this fork in the road and he could go to Rabbah of the Ammonites or he could go to Jerusalem, into Judea, to Jerusalem, the fortified. So he has, he has you know, one of two ways that he can go with the sword on the warpath. So what does he do? Well, he's a pagan king. So he turns to all sorts of superstitious devices in order to discern from the gods where he should go. Now, we know better. We know that the Lord is at work. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And the Lord has drawn his sword against Jerusalem. So we know that even in this ridiculous shaking of the arrows, looking at a liver, consulting these little idols, we know that the Lord is going to guarantee that the judgment that he has prophesied will come to pass. And in fact, it, it will. Verse 22, into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem. Now, then in verse 23, we have a little irony. There are two ironies, I think. But to them, it will seem like a false divination. That is, to the people in Judah, they'll go like, meh, this is not right. And there are two ironies here. First, the people only think it's a false divination because it's against them, right? Because, you know, oh, oh, it's not going to work out for us. Well, then our idols have to be rejected. But we know they love all of this junk. Right? They're, they're completely beholden to all sorts of idolatry. But now that it's going against them, they're being prissy. How they love the paganism when they think it's going their way. And they're only saying it's false because they don't like the outcome. It's also ironic for another reason. They have sworn solemn oaths. They're thinking, we're safe. We've got a treaty with, with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he conquered Jerusalem 10 years ago, and so he, we're fine. He's not going to attack us. But the irony there is that they've played Nebuchadnezzar false. They've rebelled against him, right? So they think that they're safe because they have a, a relationship with him, but they have been um, wicked towards this sovereign. And Nebuchadnezzar remembers his agreement just as the Lord remembers his. And Nebuchadnezzar is coming for judgment, just as the Lord has given him the sword to do so. So um, we have here the, the third king. Paul has mentioned this several times. Uh, it's worth repeating. We have here the third king that has had a cantankerous relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're told here is that we've come to the end of the road. Now, I'd like to say very quickly that it's worth noting that, that emphasizing that God is not the author of sin. God, if God, I get this from Francis Turton, by the way, you credit where it's due. So if God used Nebuchadnezzar as a man uses a sword, then God would be responsible for the evil. But God does not use Nebuchadnezzar the way that a man uses a sword. God gives the sword to Nebuchadnezzar 
Nebuchadnezzar, in his own wickedness, acts against God's chosen people, and yet he fulfills God's holy purpose of chastising his people. This distinction is technical, but it's extremely important, and we see it throughout Scripture. What does Joseph say to his brothers who sold him into slavery in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In Exodus chapter 7, the Lord says, Pharaoh's not going to let you guys go, but this is all part of my plan to display my glory that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So to here, we have an instance where the Lord is chastising his people, which is good, and yet Nebuchadnezzar is still doing something that is wicked. The preeminent example of people being responsible for their own wickedness even when God accomplishes a higher good, is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, in his magisterial sermon in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem, says, Acts Acts chapter 2, verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him by the hands of lawless men, and and that is wicked. And yet, even still, God accomplishes his redemption through it. You have to be extremely powerful that your enemies, when working against you, nevertheless accomplish your purposes. That is how powerful our God is, that even when his wicked enemies act against him, they even still fulfill his objectives. He is the sovereign king. Now, how should we respond to God's sovereign judgment? If you are trusting in Christ this morning, then I think you can have confidence for the journey and you can look forward to a certain outcome. So confidence in the journey what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans eight twenty eight? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The doctrine of God's providence is a sweet comfort for us as we face real miseries of this life. And it is also we have a certain outcome. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, We have been marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. God is going to work everything according to the counsel of his will, that we may be with Christ, that we may be the praise of his glory. So sovereign judgment. That's our first point. The second point is symbols of authority. It's in chapter 20, Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 24 to 27. Sovereign judgment, now symbols of authority. The people of Jerusalem have played Nebuchadnezzar false, and they have been false to the Lord. Verse 24, the people have been unfaithful 
to God and, and, and he knows it and he remembers it. And believe me, Ezekiel is going to make the case against the people very explicit uh, in the, uh, the, the coming chapters. And they've also been unfaithful to Nebuchadnezzar. So the time is up, verse 25. You, O profane, wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment. Now, two symbols of authority are given to kind of give a picture of what kind of judgment this is. A turban and a crown. Remove the turban and remove the crown. In Exodus chapter 28, the Lord tells Moses to make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And these, these garments for glory and beauty for the priest are a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. A turban covers the head of the priest, the one who stands between God and his people. But the priests in Ezekiel's day instead of admonishing the people to love and serve the Lord alone, spoke lies to the people about the Lord. They lied to the people about the Lord. And so they must not only face the destruction of Jerusalem, but they must face their removal from office. You're not going to be a priest in Babylon. You're going to be a nobody. Now, a crown is more obvious. A crown covers the king's head. And this has um, uh, particular resonances with the contrast of Jerusalem and Rabbah of the Ammonites. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Joab is conquering Rabbah of the Ammonites. And he realizes he's going he's to get in there. And so he summons David to come and conquer the city kind of officially, lest people say that Joab conquered the city. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 30, what does David get? And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. But then Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 26, things are not going to remain as they are. Now, presumably that crown was long gone, before that day. But the office that the crown symbolized was still around. But no more. No longer. Now, even in the midst of this judgment and the stripping of authority, there are curious verses in this passage. Verse 27. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Verse 26, things, things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. What does this mean? Who is the one to whom judgment belongs? Who will stage the great reversal? Because what's high and lofty will be plummeted. What's low will be raised up. And then there's this one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Now, one possibility is Nebuchadnezzar. 
But we can't think that, that the Lord is thinking of Nebuchadnezzar here. Nebuchadnezzar acts as the sword of God's judgment, but he doesn't, he doesn't receive the offices of priest of the Lord and king of the Lord. Instead, the one to whom judgment truly belongs, always and forever, is the Lord Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But does, does the turban and the crown belong to Jesus? Absolutely. Because Christ is both priest and king. He is our priest. Hebrews chapter 5, all the way through Hebrews chapter 10, demonstrate powerfully how Christ is both our high priest and also the sacrifice for sins. And Christ is our king. What does Gabriel say to Mary in Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will be given the throne of his father David. The crown of thorns is not the last crown to be placed on the head of King Jesus. He has a throne and he has a crown that is resplendent in glory. You know, kingdoms come and go. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, I read it on the internet, so it must be true. Nebuchadnezzar apparently means Nabu, some god, watch over my heir. So Nebuchadnezzar is basically like the name is a prayer to God, to the god Nabu for uh, protection for, for future children. But by 539 BC, so not, not long after the destruction of Jerusalem, at the Battle of Opus, the great empire of Nebuchadnezzar would be decisively routed, never to rise again. You know, the kings of France persecuted the Protestants, and the Protestants remain. Kings of France are gone. Despotic rulers all around the world fight the church, and their tawdry empires will collapse. It has been heartening to see that Iran could actually be like a new China, where there are so many Iranians coming to faith in Christ. And it's not just governments, right? It's not just the crown, it's the turban too. And we have found that churches that misuse or abuse their authority, who desecrate the word and the sacraments, they, they fall into decay. Now, this is my own uh, analysis, but I think that from 1966 to 2020, the Episcopal Church USA lost 52% of its membership. The PCUSA from 1967 to 2021 lost 64% of its membership. This happens all too easily in the church. In the preface uh, from Biza, he's uh, addressing this prominent uh, French Protestant, and he says this, In carrying on this war, there are doubtless those leaders whom God has appointed pastors, teachers, and presbyters of his church for this very purpose, that by teaching, convincing, and praying, they may administer the kingdom of the Son of God. For these are the arms by which hostile forces are to be overcome. If you judge 
by names alone, you will find them numerous enough. If by reality, you will find them but few. If you think about churches per square mile, Northwest Arkansas is doing pretty good. If you think about places where the gospel is clearly preached, where hard truths are talked about, then it's another story. Now, we live in a difficult age, but we, we should take heart. We should be happy warriors, but we should remind ourselves that no government can save us. There is no crown, but the crown that Jesus himself wears. No priest can intercede for us except for the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you are trusting in any other civil authority or any kind of religious authority to make you feel good about yourself, to make you right with God, or to have forgiveness in your sins, then you need to repent. Trust in Christ alone. So, sovereign judgment. God will use even the horrible things of life that are wicked, that are evil, to achieve his greater purpose. Symbols of authority. We have no priest, no king, but Jesus. And now a stark contrast here at the end. There's a sharp difference that God has between the judgment that he exercises towards his people and the complete, complete annihilation that he prepares for his enemies. You'll remember in verse 21 of Ezekiel chapter 21, Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, he stands at the parting of the ways, he shakes his arrows, does his little, you know, theater. And then verse 22, it's Jerusalem. Well, if you were an Ammonite, how would you feel? Pretty good, right? Yeah, yeah, Jerusalem. Yeah, you should probably attack them. That's a good idea. You think we've escaped, right? Nebuchadnezzar got angry. He could have wiped us out, but he's going to wipe out Jerusalem instead. And so the Lord tells Ezekiel, oh, you've got to give a message for them concerning the Ammonites, verse 28, concerning their reproach, concerning, verse 29, the lies that they have spoken. You need to tell them it is the time, verse 29, of their final punishment. In fact, the Lord says, just put up the sword, verse 30. Just put up the sword, right? I'm going nuclear, right? Jerusalem didn't listen to the rod of wood, so I had to bring a sword. But now, put up the sword. I'm done even with the slaughter. What does the Lord say? Verse 31. So return, return the sword of the sheath. Verse 31. And I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered for I, the Lord, have spoken. The result is total annihilation. Your, 
it's fuel for the fire. Your blood is everywhere and you will not be remembered anymore. There is a stark contrast here. When God judges his enemies, he destroys them. In this life, but if not in in this life, then in the hell that he has prepared for his enemies. The fire will come. But when God disciplines his people, there can be pain, but there's always hope. God promises a severe judgment against his people. Let's, let's be clear, right? God says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the, the priestly line, the kingly line, we're done with it. They are, the, Jerusalem's destroyed. They're exiled. The second temple is rebuilt. There is a kind of little restoration of the priesthood. And then, boom, that goes again. Fast forward to the 20th century. There is... Now, a state of Israel, there's no priest, there's no king. There's only the high priest, the Lord Jesus. There's only the true king, King Jesus. And a stark contrast is drawn all through scripture between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, the Hebrews and the Egyptians, the sheep and the goats. The Bible is full of stark contrasts. And so the question this morning is, what will you choose? Will you choose the way of Ammon? Will you say, I'm going to be with the Ammonites? Or will you choose the way of the Lord Jesus? The the choice, it is a stark contrast. We are either God's friend or we are his enemy. If we are his friend, we may well suffer horribly in this life. But he cares for us. He disciplines those he loves. And he is preparing for us rooms in heaven. If we scoff and mock the name of Christ... We have only hell to look forward to. The contrast is stark. So I beseech you, trust in Jesus. In Paul's letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 1, the fire of God's wrath is poured out on the world because of all ungodliness. And by Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And a discerning reader should say, where did the wrath go? Where did the wrath of God's anger against unrighteousness go? The wrath's in chapter one. How can there be no wrath for me in chapter eight as I trust in Jesus? And the answer is Romans chapter three. God made him who had no sin. Sorry, that's second Romans five. Christ was put forward as our propitiation. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might have the righteousness of God. You give Jesus your sin, and, and he has burnt, 
on the wrath of he has been burnt on the cross by the wrath of God. The sword fell on him, so it doesn't fall on you. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not despise the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would trust in you, Lord, if we do not know you, if we have been running from you. Lord, I pray that that if anyone here is not trusting in Christ, you would move him or her to cry out to you. And Lord, for those of us who like the uh, people in Jerusalem are comfortable with wickedness, we pray that you would cause us to repent and turn from sin. And we ask all these things in your strong and powerful name. Amen. Amen.